When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget the free TuneIn app. We're there, too. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago landmark business since 1893. There's nothing like a Vienna hot dog or one of their Polish sausages. And their products are available coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and through Amazon. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, Chicago's top purveyor of fine meats, poultry, fish, fresh frozen prepared foods, wine, beer, and now serving fresh sandwiches. They've been a staple in the city since 1949. This week, we feature White Sox radio play-by-play man Len Casper. I made a move out of strength as opposed to weakness, so to speak. Uh, When you make a move uh, based on unhappiness or, I guess, anxiety, you might make a, a bad decision. I was very comfortable, I was very secure, I was very happy with the Cubs. And in a lot of ways, those are the moments during which you should think about the big picture. And turning 50 years old, as I did recently, and I thought, now is the time to try something new. Few have done what Casper has done, play-by-play for both Chicago teams. After 16 years on the north side, he made the switch to the south side, fulfilling a dream he had as a kid growing up in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. But can Cubs fans forgive him for leaving? And will Sox fans accept him as one of their own? With that as a backdrop, Len Casper, tell me a story I don't know. I have a lot of stories, (laughs) but I'm going to (laughs) start with one of the, I believe, four no-hitters I have called in my big league career. Uh, We'll go back to uh, Thursday, April 21st, 2016. The scene of action was Great American Ballpark, Cincinnati, Ohio. This was in the middle of one of the most incredible stretches of starting pitching I have ever witnessed. Jake Arietta had about a 30-start span during which he dealt two no-hitters and probably took six, seven, maybe eight no-hit bids into the seventh inning. And what I recall about the night in Cincinnati, and you're going to remember the big picture stuff, but it's the little details that really stand out to me. He was not particularly sharp uh, early on. He walked four that night. Uh, After the game, he said he was sloppy and that he had a pre-game bullpen session that was less than stellar, which was also the case before his first no-hitter at Dodger Stadium uh, the previous season. The Cubs 
scored 16 runs that night. The outcome of the game was never really in doubt. So that allowed Jake to uh, attack uh, the Reds lineup on his terms and, and not give in. Now on the television broadcast, I, I worked with Jim Deshays. Uh, I uttered no hitter probably as early as the fourth inning. Now, I don't believe in the superstition of not mentioning mentioning a no-hitter out of respect for the pitcher. And my reasoning has long been, I'm not in the dugout. My job as a play-by-play announcer is to inform the audience, period. And the last thing you want as an announcer is for a viewer to tune in and then turn the game off because he or she doesn't know what's happening. That night, it was particularly important to remind viewers because the Chicago Blackhawks were playing the St. Louis Blues in a playoff game that started around the time of the seventh inning of our game. So as you can imagine, there were some uh, split allegiances, (laughs) even during a no-hitter, that people wanted to tune out and, and watch the Blackhawks playoff game. So... As we get deep into this, you know, eighth, ninth inning, my stomach starts to churn and the nerves start to build. Uh, And I even said uh, on the broadcast, if you aren't feeling jittery at this point, you don't have a pulse. (laughs) My partner, Jim Deshays, was absolutely brilliant uh, throughout the night. And, you know, I rarely think about what I'm going to say. Uh, on a on a broadcast, uh, the, the main exception, I guess, would be an obituary. Uh, it's really important to choose your words carefully and, and thoughtfully for obvious reasons. But in terms of general play-by-play, I, I really try to make every call organic and, and genuine. But no hitters, George, are tricky because the number one priority is to get the call right. And it's a call that if it's decent, will be played over and over again for years, if not decades. So I had two quick lines kind of in my head. Uh, not only was I going to say it's a no-hitter, but I was going to say Jake Arrieta has done it again since it was his second no-hitter in as many seasons. And uh, that was my call. Here comes the 2-2. Two, two. In the air, this should do it. Jason Hayward makes a catch. It's a no-hitter. Jake Arrieta has done it again. That was fun. And I then said, and again, this is something I hadn't thought of previously, and I'm proud of this line because sometimes when you try to encapsulate a big moment, you, you, you tend to fall short. But I said, I say the sky's the limit. Maybe the universe is the limit for this guy. And it, it just felt right for Jake Arrieta uh, in that moment. So that, that was one of those no-hitters uh, during and after which I actually felt good about my performance because it's very easy to nitpick yourself uh, when you have those big, famous, classic games. You know, it's funny when you say that because you think you want to let every game come to you. But in a situation like that, you've got to come to the game, right? There's no question about it. Uh, You have to make, I would say from generally 
with some exceptions from the seventh inning on, you have to make decisions about how much is too much, how much history uh, is too much because the, that night and every pitch is paramount. Uh, I remember Cole Hamill's no hitter with the Phillies at Wrigley field against the Cubs mm -hmm. in 2015. Uh, there was a lot going on that day. It was the first no-hitter at Wrigley Field since 1972. Mill Pappas in September of that year. Uh, but it was also a guy on the other team. And so you have to balance the, I'm the Cubs announcer in this moment, but the guy on the other side uh, is flirting with history. And look, the fans, I think, in the ninth were actually on Cole's side, and it ended up being his final start as a Philly. If you recall, the final out was uh, pretty bizarre. As oh, yeah. Dubal Herrera misjudged the ball in center field and ended up making a diving catch on the warning track. So, yeah, every no-hitter is unique, and you just have to be on your toes as much as possible to capture those moments. You made a big move. Let's face it, Len. It, it was a huge move here. Uh, you left the Cubs TV booth for the White Sox radio booth, which left everyone stunned. So tell me a story I don't know. Did it leave you a bit stunned? <laughs> the thing that stunned me the most about my move from the Cubs television booth to the White Sox radio booth was the voluminous amount of reaction. I, of course, <laughs> expected it to be a fairly big deal in Chicago in kind of the broadcasting and sports circles, but I had no idea how far-reaching the story would become. I did the math about a week after it all went down, and I realized that I had heard from a broadcaster or a front office person or a coaching staff member from all 30 major league clubs. Wow. Unsolicited. <laughs> uh, plus a couple of people from major league baseball uh, itself. That really blew me away. Uh, my, my, my goal in life and in my career was never to cross off a checklist of people I should know. It all happened organically over the last 20 plus years, but it really hit me, George, just how many people I know and how many people I guess I know better than I thought I did. And I don't wanna mention names because it's probably unfair uh, for, for confidential sake. <laughs> But I heard from some executives with other clubs whom I had known as acquaintances, uh, but they reached out to me and were deeply touched by the fact that I made a counterintuitive move that when explained made sense, but before I explained it kind of made no sense. So that was fun to talk to people about why I decided to make this move at this point in my career. Now, I've said this publicly, so you kind of know, but I will repeat it anyway. Uh, I made a move out of strength as opposed to weakness, so to speak. Uh, when you make a move 
based on unhappiness or uh, I guess anxiety, you might make a, a bad decision. I was very comfortable. I was very secure. I was very happy with the Cubs. And in a lot of ways, those are the moments during which you should think about the big picture. And turning 50 years old, as I did recently, I decided that I wanted to do radio full-time for the first time in my baseball career, something I had dreamed about when I was a kid. Uh, I had watched a World Series championship uh, with the Cubs, their first in 108 years. I had eight incredible seasons with Bob Brenly. I had eight with Jim Deshays. I had a great run on WGN Superstation, which carried the Cubs games nationally. Uh, I was on NBC Sports Chicago and Channel 7 and Marquee Sports Network. So I really did cross off a lot of those boxes. And I thought now is the time to try something new. You know what's interesting about all that is I got a bunch of texts, Facebook posts, Twitter posts. They all said the same thing. George, tell me the real story. I said, the real story is what Len Casper is telling you. There is no behind the story story. He left because he wanted to follow a dream. It's true. When people would say, why? <laughs> My answer was, why not? And I think if we looked at life like that a little more often, it might be a little more uncomfortable. But I think at the end of the day, it's good for the soul to at least ask the question. During your introductory press conference as the new radio voice of the White Sox, you made this pronouncement about making sure you continue to be who you are, but you added this. Uh, I'm going to have to earn uh, the trust of some people who either hated my broadcasts or never watched or, or, or listened to me at all, and that's, that's exciting too. And if we can, uh, I don't know if we'll convert any fans over from the north to the south side, um, I do take it very seriously that maybe a, a young person out there who hears uh, our work and our broadcasts becomes a big White Sox fan or wants to be a big league broadcaster as a result of what I do. Uh, that's, that's a win. So take me back to growing up in Michigan and having your radio tuned to Tigers games and the mellifluous sounds of Ernie Harwell, who was their voice for over 40 years. I imagine that he was both an inspiration, and an education, all wrapped up in one. There's no question. I don't know the particular day or even year when I first heard Ernie Harwell's voice on the radio, but I do remember falling in love with it. Uh, being a Michigander by birth, a Midwesterner, to hear the southern twang of Ernie Harwell uh, was something that I had never heard before. Yet, it didn't sound foreign to me or strange. It felt oddly comfortable. And I think I speak for a lot of people from Michigan who are from my generation. If you had asked them in 1978 or 1987, where's Ernie from? Instead of saying, well, obviously he's from Georgia, you would have said he's from Michigan. <laughs> he's one of us. <laughs> and I always appreciated that 
about Ernie. Uh, I fell asleep many, many late nights with my transistor radio right by my bed, listening to Ernie and Paul Carey, uh, his longtime radio partner. And for a tell you a quick note that you didn't know, my first radio job, I was 17 years old. I worked at a small radio station in the Mount Pleasant, Michigan area, right in the smack dab middle of the mitten, if you can picture what Michigan looks like. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time, it wasn't owned by this person, but about maybe a year, a year and a half after I started working there, running uh, the audio board for Satellite Music Service, a gentleman by the name of Mike Carey bought the radio station. Mike is Paul Carey's nephew. Hmm. So that was a nice connection for me uh, to work with someone who knew uh, one of my childhood idols uh, very well, in fact, was a family member. I never got to know uh, Paul particularly well, and Paul was from my neck of the woods in Mount Pleasant, but I was very fortunate to get to know Ernie. I interviewed him when I was in college in 1991 at County Stadium in Milwaukee before a Tigers-Brewers game. This was his first farewell tour. He had been told before that season by Bo Schembechler, who was the president of the Tigers at the time, that he would not be returning for the following year. Uh, Ernie gave me probably five to seven minutes of his time, uh, said my name several times throughout the interview. When he would answer a question, he would say, well, you know, Len, and you got to remember 1991, I was 20 years old. So mm -hmm. for, for a fresh-faced uh, college kid, to have your idol say your name throughout an interview, uh, that was the greatest moment of my life to that point. I stayed in touch with Ernie over the years. Uh, he stayed in the game, thankfully, and continued to broadcast and actually returned to the Tigers. Um, but we uh, exchanged correspondence. And when I got the Florida Marlins job in 2002, he sent me a handwritten letter uh, congratulating me on the big uh, move. When I got the Cubs job prior to 2005, he actually called me at home to congratulate me. And that meant the world to me. Uh, I, I believe it was my first year with the Cubs. He was writing a column for the Detroit Free Press. He called me and said, I want to write this week's column on you. Hmm. Every answer I gave him was about Ernie. I said, <laughs> he said, tell me about your influences growing up. And I said, well, I listen to you, Ernie. Uh, tell me about your broadcasting philosophy. Well, whatever Ernie would say is generally how I would do it. And when he wrote the column, he basically did not put himself in the column anywhere. And it really speaks to how gracious Ernie Harwell was. And uh, I miss him every day. You know, I interviewed Ernie several times. I think it's fair to say he was a very sweet human being. So when did you know, Len? Tell me a story I don't know. When you wanted to be Ernie Harwell when you grew up? Probably when I was in high school. I knew I wanted to be Ernie when I was 12 or 13. But I think when it really hit, I, I played just about every sport uh, in, in high school. I played freshman football. 
and I realized football was not my bailiwick. <laughs> I played basketball through my junior year. I was okay. I started occasionally, but I was mainly a bench player. I played baseball all the way through my, my high school career. Uh, I actually threw a no-hitter uh, in, in high school. I pitched a little bit, played some third base, um, but I was, again, nothing special. And so probably around age 16 or 17, I started to realize that my athletic career was likely to end as my high school career came to a close. Uh, so I started doing uh, the public address announcing for uh, the football games. Uh, I think I did some PA announcing for the basketball games and it became very clear, I think to everybody that that might be the path I would choose. There's an assumption that when I went to college, I was a broadcasting major, but that's actually not accurate. I majored in public relations at Marquette University. And, you know, serendipity is really an interesting concept, and it applies to me throughout my life. My freshman advisor. Was a, was a professor by the name of Bill Baxter. Uh, he was a PR titan and a longtime professor uh, at Marquette. His background was in broadcasting. Uh, he had done public address announcing, I believe, for the Barry Switzer coached Oklahoma Sooners back in the day. And so he and I really hit it off. And he told me my freshman year, the Milwaukee Bucks of the NBA have a public relations internship, and generally it's reserved for upperclassmen, fresh, uh, juniors and seniors. But as I look at your resume and your background, you are qualified for this and you should apply. So I'm probably, George, on campus for two or three weeks to start my college career, and I'm already applying for an internship with an NBA club, and I got it. And that year, I basically was at all of the Bucks home games in their second year at the Bradley Center. And this is in the heart of the NBA golden era. I mean, it's, it's Magic Johnson, it's Larry Bird, it's Michael Jordan, it's Isaiah Thomas. Uh, the first person I saw as we took a bus to Green Bay, Wisconsin for a, an exhibition game was seven-foot Jack Sigma. Oh, I remember him. <laughs> so you, you talk about a big league moment for an 18-year-old kid to run into Jack Sigma. Uh, I still remember how in awe I was. So that was really in, instructive for me and helpful to me to be on the other side of it in a public relations department to interview players, get quotes after games. I got to meet a lot of media people. And without that experience, I'm not sure I would be where I am today. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt, and oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. 
and look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, socks and cubs, stadiums, museums, and the zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. And remember, Vienna's not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on the free TuneIn app or wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Len Casper on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. Life in this business is getting there, Len, and getting there means following the signpost. And it didn't take you long to find a pretty good gig in Milwaukee. Tell me a story I don't know about the Packers, the Brewers, and another legendary broadcaster named Bob Euchre. <laughs> Bob Euchre. I will tell that story first. He kind of took me under his wing, as did his partner at the time, Pat Hughes. Uh, Pat was uh, the Brewers' number two announcer before uh, he came to Chicago in 1996. Well, I was doing the afternoon show from three to six on WTMJ Radio, the Brewers' flagship. Uh, I did the sports reports, uh, I believe at uh, 20 and 50 (laughs) uh, past the hour. And we tended to have a lot of fun and a lot of Uh, The sports stories and bits that I did were not the obvious nuts and bolts uh, sports items. Well, for some reason, I got it in my head, and I don't know if it was my idea or somebody else at the station, but we had a little fun with some music. And if you remember the old Gary Glitter song, Rock and Roll Part Two, mm-hmm. there basically are no lyrics other than da 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 da, hey, da 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 da, right? It's been played at every sports arena and ballpark uh, for the last 40 or 50 years. Well, one of Bob's signature calls was his home run call. And it was get up, get out of here, gone. But he would typically say, hey, get up, get out of here, gone. A home run for Molitor and the Brewers lead 4-3. So (laughs) we thought his hey would fit really well in that song. So I think during one of my sports reports, we played the song and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Hey, you hear a euchre. <laughs> it was great. Everybody loved it. We had a barrel, but just it was so much fun. We laughed. So we did that for a couple of days. And the Brewers are in Boston. And I get uh, a, a call from the engineering department, which was just down the hall from the studio. So I I go from the on-air studio into the engineering office, and one of the engineers at the station said, uh, Kent Sommerfeld, who 
is still is the brewer's on-site engineer wants to talk with you. I said, oh, okay. So I grabbed the phone. Hey, Kent, how are you? He goes, hey, Len, um, you uh, wants to talk with you for a second. I said, sure. So he grabs the phone. What the blank, the blank are you doing to me? I'm like, uh, <laughs> hi, Bob. My heart sank. I had never heard more expletives in my life. What do you think I am, a clown? You're making fun of me playing this stupid song on the air every day and laughing at me. I thought we were friends. I mean, he cut right to the chase. It was a good three or four minutes of a tongue lashing. Then there was a long pause. I, I, I mean, I'm sweating bullets. I'm probably in tears. And he goes, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I knew at that moment I was in. In fact, Bob didn't even know the story. Kent had kind of told him, hey, they're doing this funny bit on the station. You should hear it. And instead of listening to it, he just decided to call me and rake me over the coals for the bit. Uh, so with Bob, that's how you know you're one of his good friends. He's treated me incredibly well. Uh, the Packers and the Brewers stories, you know, I, I did Packers pregame, halftime, postgame during the Favre. Holmgren Wolf era uh, that included a couple of uh, trips to the Super Bowl. Uh, I actually here, here's a good one. I attended Super Bowl week twice, once in New Orleans, the year the Packers beat uh, the Patriots. And I covered the Super Bowl the next year when the Packers played the Broncos in San Diego. But in both cases, I wasn't at the game. We were there for the week and we ended up flying back to Milwaukee for the actual game. So it was one of those kind of bittersweet things. It was cool to be uh, in the middle of the action for Super Bowl week, but it just made more sense logistically uh, to, to do the pre and post game from Milwaukee. But that first year, Howard David was the voice of the Milwaukee Bucks on WTMJ. May I, may I interrupt for a moment? A yep. wonderful human being who I was working with uh, as a freelancer when he's with the, uh, the CBS radio network. I always called him the man with two first names. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Howard was great. So he was the voice of the Bucks. He was also the, I believe, Westwood One voice of the NFL. So he had to miss a game to call the Super Bowl that year. His backup announcer was Dennis Krause, longtime television uh, sportscaster and had uh, dabbled in radio. Well, Dennis was on site in New Orleans to cover the Super Bowl for uh, the TV station at WTMJ. So I got a phone call. Hey, can you fill in on Saturday, the day before the Super Bowl in Indianapolis? for the Bucks Pacers game. I said, sure. So I called one NBA game in my life. It ended up being a Bucks buzzer beater. Elliot Perry hit one from about 16 feet away, literally at the buzzer to beat the Pacers. And that is my NBA claim to fame. You know, you were part of Cubs lore before you even joined them. So you get a big break in 2002, you're hired by the Marlins. 
And little do we know the next voice of the Cubs is in the next booth over describing how the fish reeled in the Northsiders, went on to win the World Series. Uh, when you were at Wrigley Field, did you ever have visions of becoming the voice of the Cubs? I've often said it was never my dream to become the voice of the Chicago Cubs. And that is because it was well beyond even my wildest dreams. My dream growing up was to be the voice of a big league club. Uh, when it happened in 2002 with the Florida Marlins, I had basically thought, this is it. Uh, hopefully I'll be here until the end of time. But life doesn't work that way. And after the 2004 season, I'll, I'll never forget being on the Marlins team bus. We're in Philadelphia final day of, of that season. And we had been given every day media clips by the media relations department of the Marlins. Uh, now you get them via email and just read them on your computer. But at that time, literally it was a packet uh, of probably 50 pages of stories about baseball from around the league. And as I'm leafing through the clips that morning, uh, probably a Chicago Tribune story about Chip Carey uh, leaving the Cubs uh, to go broadcast for the Atlanta Braves. And I remember saying to my good friend, John Shambi, who at the time was the uh, number two radio voice of the Marlins, hey, did you see Chip is leaving? And he said, yeah. And I said, that's probably Obi's job. Now, Obi is Dave O'Brien. Dave O'Brien was the Florida Marlins TV voice who left for ESPN very late in the off season of 2001-2002, right after John Henry bought the Red Sox, sold the Marlins to Jeffrey Loria, who bought the Marlins and sold the Montreal Expos to Major League Baseball. That allowed me to get uh, that job with the Marlins. So I kind of forgot about the Cubs gig for a couple of weeks, uh, never even, in, in, in my wildest dreams, thinking I would be a candidate, I got a phone call from a good friend in Chicago, Andy Mazur, and he sure. said, hey, have you talked to the Cubs? I said, no, why? He said, I'm hearing your name. I said, really? He said, you might want to call John McDonough. So I got off the phone and immediately called the Cubs then marketing chief, John McDonough. And I, I'll never forget the conversation. Literally, hi, this is John. Hey, John, it's Len Casper. I do play-by-play -play with the Florida Marlins. You probably don't know who I am. He chuckled and said, Len, I know exactly who you are. And within about 10 minutes, I realized that I was not only someone the Cubs and WGN really liked, but I was one of the top three or four candidates they liked but they weren't going to call me I needed to call them so that phone call was pretty fateful uh, I ended up uh, flying to Chicago interviewed with Bob Vorwald the executive producer at WGN with John McDonough uh, it was made pretty clear early on that I was the number three candidate for the job Dave O'Brien who was working at ESPN was the pretty clear number one choice 
Number two was Matt Vaskersian, who at the time was the Padres TV voice. He and I were good friends because when I filled in for him in Milwaukee, he was a big champion of mine back in the late 90s. So he had this interesting group of people. I had very close connections with Dave and with Matt, and I got the job for one reason. I didn't have a new contract with the Marlins. <laughs> That's it. So George, it's really one of those rare stories at the end of which everybody got what they wanted. It all works out in the end. You know, Len, the mark of a broadcaster, especially in baseball, is the home run call. And when it's a big one, it ends up with you saying, oh, baby, so tell me a story I don't know. Why did you develop that? Oh, baby was something I think I had heard Bob Cole utter uh, for the first time when I was young. Bob Cole was the longtime television voice of CBC's Hockey Night in Canada. And I'm pretty sure his most iconic call was a goal scored by Mario Lemieux in the 1992 Stanley Cup final. Uh, he had gone through probably three or four Minnesota North Stars players and kind of weaved his way in and scored. And I think, you know, the, essentially the line was, Lemieux, he scores, whoa, baby, something like that. And I thought, that's a really cool call. Now, I've heard that line in other contexts, but if it wasn't the first time I uttered it, it was definitely the one people remember the most. Uh, back in June of 2007, the Lou Pinella-led Cubs were kind of sputtering along. They were six and a half games, I think, behind the Brewers. And they had a game at Wrigley Field. It was a day game. They were down uh, by, I believe, one or two runs. There was one or two on base. Bottom of the ninth. And here's the big moment. Aramis Ramirez steps in against Francisco Cordero, the closer of the Brewers. Typically, when you have these battles and these moments, it, it, it takes a while to develop. You know, first pitch called strike, second pitch outside, one and one, foul away. You know, there's, there's something that builds. Well, in this particular moment, it was a hanging slider on the first pitch. Ramirez absolutely crushed it. There was no question off the bat that it was going to be a home run. The place was up for grabs. The pitch to Aramis. There's a drive. Deep left center. Cubs win. They win it. Ramirez, two-run shot. Oh, baby. Can you believe it? And so as a broadcaster, you're caught off guard a little bit in that moment. I became a fan. Uh, my call to this day is one that people still remember. Uh, I'm just screaming at the top of my lungs. Deep left center, Cubs win, Cubs win, Ramirez, two-run shot. Oh, baby, can you believe it? And that's kind of when that old baby really became part of, when Len says old baby, you know it's a big moment. And uh, I, I'm proud of the call. It doesn't sound like 
the broadcaster Len Casper, but it definitely, uh, I think, endeared me to the fan base. This was my third season as the Cubs voice. That propelled that team to basically being the best team in the division over the rest of that season and then in 2008. But for, for a few Cubs fans who maybe still were a little suspicious, that might have been the moment when they said, he's one of us. You know, it's funny. You may have just answered a two-part question because I was going to say the, the, the easiest thing to ask someone like yourself is, who's the best player you ever saw? What's the greatest game? So I want to approach it from a little different angle. What player in the Cubs had the biggest impact while you were on the north side? And what was the most electric game you broadcast? Was that it? That would be a candidate for sure. Uh, I'm going to go, however with Chris Bryant and the three homer, two double game he had in Cincinnati in 2016. He has been remarkably consistent. Number three, full house time, baby. I don't want no stinking cycle. What a show. What a show. <laughs> Unofficially. not gonna do it. Unofficially, according to Scott Lindholm, who does a lot of baseball research, since 1913, he is the first player ever to do this. Three homers and two doubles. Chris is someone I deeply admire, not only as a player, but more so as a person. Uh, having gotten to know him pretty well, what has always struck me most about Chris Bryant is his honesty. Uh, he did a post-game interview, I believe, and I don't even think it was with me, but I, I commented to him how much I appreciated this. Whatever the question was, it was something along the lines of, you know, why or how uh, does this team or do you get motivated for every game? Whatever it was, it was a good question. And he kind of smiled and he said, I don't know. And that was the entire answer. And it kind of caught the interviewer off guard, but then he or she continued on. And I said to him the next day, I said, Chris, don't ever lose that. Uh, that is a, a very powerful thing to not feel like you have to give uh, a deep answer to a question that you, you don't know the answer to. And I said, actually saying, I don't know, is, is a really smart answer. Uh, too often in our business, George, when we're put on the spot, we tend to try to sound smart. <laughs> but human nature is such that if you and I were in an off-air conversation and you asked me a question and I didn't know the answer to it, the best answer should be, you know what? I don't really know. So I've always loved that about Chris. And that night in Cincinnati, if he had had 12 at-bats, I'm pretty convinced he would have hit seven home runs. It was the first time in Major League history a player had hit uh, three home runs and two doubles. Um, Matt Carpenter would be the second player to do it, and he did it against the Cubs at Wrigley Field, I, I remember two years later. Mm -hmm. But I will never forget that night uh, Chris Bryant was as locked in uh, as any player I've ever uh, seen. And as I said, I, I 
I love him as a person and uh, I really like the way he goes about things. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by the Polina Market. And if you haven't been there, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meat since 1949, and it's only getting bigger and better. From the popular Wagyu steaks to their porterhouse and tomahawk selections, Polina leads the way, and you might just spend hours there perusing the frozen food section. Everything made fresh, including chicken pot pies, pulled pork, and a variety of meatloaves. You like brats? I love them, including their pork variety, which is so juicy and tasty on the grill. And now the Polina Market has seafood and sandwiches from the deli and wine and beer to match anything you buy. Plus, they expanded again, making the in-store experience even better, but you can still order online to pick up. Take my word for it, the Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. Mention you found them through this podcast. Now let me tell you a story about Lynn and I that you don't know, and it goes back to when you arrived here for the 2005 season. We met, and as we talked, the subject turned to tennis. I said, do you play? And you said, you did. So we made a tennis date. Knowing that you were ranked, I don't know, something like 4.5, and I was between 3.5 and a 4, which for folks who don't know is the difference between one point and a Richter scale when it comes to an earthquake. In other words, it's a mismatch. We hit and you were very gracious, but let's face it, I wasn't in your league. That was 2005. We have not played since. So tell me a story I don't know. Do you still play tennis? It's interesting. I don't. And uh, I do remember playing with you and I have played tennis most of my life. Uh, I should get back into it. Uh, where I play my club, I played with uh, a lot of guys who are a little older than I am, but were very seasoned. And I'm a big doubles player. So we, I played a lot of doubles over the years. And uh, when they either retired and moved uh, to warmer climates in the winter, and remember with my job, I mostly play tennis and do a lot of those other non-baseball things in the off season. So mm -hmm. I'm not a summer tennis player. I'm a winter player. So I kind of got out of the habit because a lot of my my tennis buddies uh, had moved on uh, and I started lifting weights and I started running every day outside. Now, when I say every day outside, you probably are saying to yourself, he means most days outside. We had a day maybe three winters ago, the air temperature was maybe minus 15. It was one of the coldest days in the history of Chicago. The windshield, I think, was 30 or 40 below zero. I put on two ski masks, uh, two pairs of socks. You didn't. I did. I actually <laughs> ran, and I remember um, I had ice coming off my nose. Like, literally, <laughs> my face was frozen. But my philosophy is I have to get out of the house 
every day. I just, I, even on the worst weather days, I cannot sit in the house. So uh, whether it's pouring rain or a foot of snow on the ground or, you know, the ice on the roads, I am out and I have a six and a half to seven mile route that I try to navigate. I don't run all of it all the time. Sometimes I'll walk half of it. But the great thing about jogging outside, George, is that if you get three or three and a half miles away from your house, there's only one way to get back. <laughs> and when you're on a treadmill, you can just hit the off button. So it has served me well. And running and lifting have both replaced my tennis game. All right. Well, that's 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 one hobby. It's a it's a healthy hobby. Everyone has one or two. One of yours is music, and you're pretty passionate about it. Enough so you love to play and sing. So tell me a story I don't know. Would you rather be touring with a band or calling a baseball game? <laughs> oh, that tough is question. A, that is a very tough question. <laughs> well, I have not toured with a band at this point, but it is still on the bucket list. And about five years ago, right around the time I turned 45, I said to myself, if you're ever going to write music and write songs on your own and come up with a concept and record an album, it's probably now or never. If I don't do it at 45, I'm probably not going to do it at 55. So I started writing some songs over the next three or four years. And the whole goal was just the process of completing it. At the end of the day, I had a good batch of songs that friends who are much more musically inclined than I thought were pretty good. I came up with the name of a band. I recruited some really talented members. And in 2021, the band Sonic 45, with all the songs written by Len Casper, will uh, put out a debut record called Space and Time. It will also be on vinyl, and it's something I'm very proud of. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride the fence on your question, George, and I'm going to say I'm going to call a baseball game and then the next day I'm going to go on tour. <laughs> so let's see, what do you do in the band and do we know some of the other band members? I am the, song, the main songwriter mm -hmm. and I play bass in the band. Uh, you do know some of the other members. The lead singer is Matt Spiegel, a long of course. sports uh, radio uh, talk show announcer in Chicago. Doug Julin, who also has done some radio in Chicago and a great guitar player in many bands, including Sunshine Boys, um, Liam Davis, Gerald Dowd, two other amazing musicians. Liam is our producer, plays guitar, sings backup. Gerald is the best drummer on the planet. We are all having a blast with this project. They are all in, and it's been a total fun from day one and the second it's not fun i'm gonna drop it <laughs> okay roll call here a couple of your top 
albums or CDs uh, and your favorite performer? Probably the best record of all time, in my opinion, is Who's Next mm. by The Who. I believe it's nine songs. Uh, it has the best opener, best closer a, a record could ever have. This was before me. you were born, right? Uh, it was right around that time. Wow. I think I was maybe one. I don't <laughs> remember hearing it at that time, but I certainly did later on. Yeah. Uh, but it, to me, it was Pete, Roger, John, Keith at the pinnacle of their powers. Uh, there are a lot of Who fans who would pick Quadrophenia, uh, but for me, I give the slight edge to Who's Next. Uh, my favorite performer of all time is Eddie Vedder. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been able to fortunately uh, call Eddie a good friend. He is a huge Cubs and baseball fan. And yes, I am slowly working on recruiting him to root for the White Sox as well. Good luck. Uh, I think an all-Chicago all World Series would be a blast. But when you watch Eddie Vedder from the crowd, on television, or from backstage, or from even on stage right next to him, he has a charisma, a power in his voice, a command of the room that I have never seen before in just about any area of life. That includes broadcasting, music, acting, anything. He is a comet. This guy is as talented as any person I've ever met. You grew up in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, which has such an inviting name, Len. So here's a list of notable people from your hometown, which includes the aforementioned Paul Carey, of course, the longtime voice of the Tigers, Tom Crean, who coached at Marquette in Indiana, Matt LaFleur, the coach of the Packers, and some guy named Len Casper. Nice company. Pretty good. Mid-Michigan has uh, produced a lot of interesting sports uh, personalities. Dick Enberg went to Central Michigan University. My all-time favorite play-by-play -play yeah. announcer. Located in Mount Pleasant. Uh, Dick and I had a nice conversation about our Midwest roots uh, a few years before he unfortunately passed away. Uh, Joe Davis, the voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers, is from Potterville, I believe, which is just outside of Lansing. John Smoltz, the Hall of Fame pitcher and terrific number one Fox analyst on MLB, is from Lansing. So it's, uh, it's a pretty good area in terms of uh, sports personalities. And I have to give a shout out uh, to the late Vern Rule. Vern uh, had a terrific major league career as a pitcher, including some time with the Tigers back in the day, uh, and also became one of uh, the best pitching coaches uh, of recent memory. Vern was very nice to me. Uh, he was from Coleman, Michigan, not too far from my hometown. And uh, uh, I, I think about Vern a lot. I have a sneaky suspicion about this final answer. I end all of my interviews this way. If not for sports broadcasting, what would you have been? I would like to say the bass player in Pearl Jam, but I think <laughs> the more likely answer would be a college history professor. I minored in history at Marquette. Uh, I'm particularly enthralled with American history. I'm a voracious nonfiction book reader, and uh, that's probably where I would have ended up. Thank you, Len Casper, for telling me a story. I don't know. Thank you, George. 
My thanks to NBC Sports Chicago and a new and exciting band, Sonic 45, for those wonderful highlights. Thanks, as always, to TJ Rees for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his deft editing, T.T. Shinkin for her artistic touch, and Ken Schreiner for always being there. And, of course, to our presenting sponsors, the Polina Market. Find them at polina.com and the Vienna Beef Company in business since 1893. You can find them at viennabeef.com. Join me next time for another edition of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.